At Georgian, we bring entrepreneurs a wide range of podcasts that help them get to the right level of depth about technology and trends so they can be more strategic about building their businesses. Today, we have a fascinating discussion. I'm speaking with Vas Bednar. She's the executive director of McMaster University's Master of Public Policy and Digital Society program. She's an adjunct professor of political science and is a public policy fellow. I also recommend you read her newsletter, Regs to Riches. So here's John Pryor sitting with a professor, but this is not going to be an academic discussion. We have a wide ranging chat on privacy, competition and advertising, and whether the status quo hurts or helps innovation. We even talk about what new regulations might bring to startups and how that could impact their relationships with those big companies out there. I'm John Pryor, and welcome to the Impact Podcast. So last night, I saw a TV ad for DuckDuckGo, of which their tagline was none of our business. What are you doing at one o'clock in the morning searching for stuff? It's none of our business. What did you just buy? Yes, it's none of our business. But we know there are tons of companies out there that are kind of looking to hoover up all the data they can find to build some type of profile. So what's your take of DuckDuckGo and what's kind of what's happening in terms of the sucking in of all this data? Well, I mean, DuckDuckGo is fascinating in that it presents an alternative to consumers. So a lot of the time in these data-driven markets, it's hard to find alternatives or consumers lack that choice at the very least. And what they do is they present privacy as as a competitive advantage, right? Privacy as quality of their product. And they're putting consumers in the driver's seat. I love that frame of none of our business because some of what concerns uh, me a little bit more beyond challenges with data governance or, or people not being able to fully and freely consent to data that they're volunteering is how that data or information can be integrated across platforms, right? Or across in, in very large companies, subsidiaries that they own, et cetera. There's a particular opaqueness that is worth talking about and kind of educating people about so that we can have a more fulsome conversation about it. But I love that you saw a commercial for it because, hey, it's still an ad, but it's showing up in an interesting place, right? Your television. That's kind of cool, too. I was very excited about it. And I'm definitely going to go down the path of you. We're going to talk about silos a little bit. I just okay. think as you talk about company and privacy as differentiation, I, I don't don't give Apple an A plus or even an A, but I'll give them a higher score than most any other company in terms of privacy mm-hmm. as a differentiator for them, they still hoover up lots of different data within their space. So I'm not sure they're just protecting their own fiefdom or doing the right thing for humankind. Well, you know, with Apple, there's uh, some interesting cases right now, just looking at their app store and gatekeeping, looking at that 30% commission. Is it fair? Is it unreasonable? Is it the right norm? And also whether or not they need to be required to open their payment processing, not to be boring, but their payment processing to other operators. You know, they're they're skimming money off every transaction that happens in apps that they house. Let's talk about it. But you're right. By and large, uh, they tend to do a better job. And I think what they definitely deserve applause for, or at least a lot of emojis or hearts, because what? how else can you communicate online, <laughs> was their app store change around having people opt in to location services, to tracking, and really helping people, again, opt in in a much more clear uh, way. And I think that's helped provoke really important conversations and 
help people reevaluate what's going on on their phone. I wonder, though, if that's too granular. Uh, mm. This this thought about this collection of data at the end of the day, my view is and I really want to hear your comments on this. They're trying to develop the persona of, mm-hmm. of what they consider you to be so that all kinds of things can happen, particularly selling things. So I'm not sure we consumers really know the why of it yet. What, what, what's your sense? I, I'm not sure. I think you're right that consumers may not fully appreciate the why. Often firms will explain, oh, this, these are aggregate profiles. You know, it's people like this, geriatric millennial, educated <laughs> women with glasses who live in a city and, you know, have this type of job. And companies are doing that to make predictions and, and de-risk advertising to you, right? It's actually about de-risking what they spend if they're trying to port business from someone, or if they're trying to sort of sell access to that information sort of through a platform. But again, back to what should consumers know more about or worry about? You and I were chatting about a Netflix show called Don't Look Up. We're also (laughs) chatting about books. I mean, if we take Amazon, you know, Amazon owns Goodreads. It owns IMBD. It has their Amazon Prime where they're producing content. They recently purchased MGM, I believe. They, of course, own, I mean, not own Amazon. They are Amazon. They know the bookseller. They know passages that people are highlighting in books. They know books that people are pre-ordering. This is a company that can scoop up the rights to something that is demand-driven, data-driven, that can give us what we want before we know as a collective that we want to consume this content. Is that innovation or is that some kind of weird demand-driven cultural content where, you know, also how are, how are artists or the original people producing the, the source content being compensated or, or credited for producing something that goes on those, one of those platforms in order to reach audiences? I, I hope that's no, not too abstract. It's something I've been thinking about recently. No, I think it's great. And it's interesting, but the, you just talked about where silos kind of are breaking down because yeah. of movies and purchases. Uh, And if I'll take that Amazon piece one step further, if you have an Amazon Fire Stick and you're not sure where this movie is, you could still search on Amazon. It'll tell you, oh, it's on Netflix or Hulu. And I have the same thing because I use Roku and I'm thinking, do I like this? This is so convenient. But all of a sudden, Roku used to be this great technical service. And now I realize they're just another marketing engine gathering more data about me as well. Right. Yeah. You know convenience, efficiency, a frictionless life. These are all things that are valuable and that many of the time or most of the time we do want. But again, consumers, customers, people, I shouldn't call them consumers, not just when you're buying things, too often they're not in the driver's seat, right? It's hard to turn off some of that data collection that we mentioned with Apple's update that people are so familiar with. Can't turn off the algorithm on Netflix for what they're advertising to you. You can't only search by something being alphabetical or the most, you know, recent additions. Why not? What if people don't, you know, want to be governed by algorithm in that way or or subject to that kind of predictive profiling? I think that's kind of on the horizon for policy conversations. Excellent. And I'm going to come back to algorithms as well. But the space we're kind of on at the moment I guess the word is surveillance capitalism. It's uh, Shoshana yes. Zuboff, right? That's really what this is. And I guess the question for me is, are we just talking about 
business models? Mm. And does that then, does that open the door for regulation? I mean, we, we, we're saying, oh, but we're giving you this stuff for free. Why would you regulate me? Because it's for free. And then how, how do the regulators begin to think about that? Well, at the start, it was really difficult for regulators to conceive of it because our legislative environments hadn't contemplated, as you said, receiving something for free. You couldn't really go to consumer protection and say, you know, I got this for free and and this happened. There wasn't a payment. We don't view privacy or data as a form of payment, though we increasingly recognize it as something that's of value and something that is to be volunteered or donated. Another reason is just because of how our governance structures are structured, you know, to have meaningful, comprehensive policy responses to a digital economy, you can't just pick one toolkit out of your box. I'm using terrible cliches, but it's not just, okay, it's not just about competition policy. It's not just about taxation. It's not just about privacy. It's also consumer protection and labor, right? You have to be thinking about modernizing these instruments kind of in concert. And I think what frustrates people, and I include entrepreneurs and innovators and the private sector in that, is that we are having these conversations in a kind of piecemeal way. And that can be really frustrating and onerous for everyone. Interesting. We don't like the silos of data. And it's almost hard to think about regulating in a silo piece as well. But maybe one step at a time is the only way to go. The Biden administration has a thing now. If you go to Google, we talked about mm. Duck, Duck, we opened with DuckDuckGo. Yeah. And you do a search on Google, you know, the first seven responses are going to be Google properties. And I right. think there's a bill right now. Oh, I found it. It's the American Innovation and Choice mm-hmm. Online Act so yeah. that big tech companies can't favor their own services in an anti-competitive way. I, it's why I like DuckDuckGo. I think I get, uh, they're on the top of the fold, finally, the results I'm looking for, right? Yeah. I admire that piece of legislation as a provocation, but I wonder if it's necessary to target only the largest technology companies because self-preferencing is not really a new behavior. We're familiar with it in like the grocery store where grocers self-preference, right? Their own products, give them good shelf space, whatever. Or they're paid for by the the vendors pay for their exactly right? They get paid for it. It's no difference, right? Just like online, right? But here's another kind of throwback, at least Google labels those properties, right? Most often we're not even labeling the products that are being self-preferenced. So they may be a private label product that's owned by the, again, be it the platform, be it the grocer. So these online third-party marketplaces are becoming a norm. They're not just the purview of, of big technology companies. If you're listening from Canada or if you've been to Canada, you know, the Bay is now an online third-party marketplace, and they've got plenty of private label products that they are very happy to self-preference in mm. search. Loblaw, too, very popular grocer. They have President's Choice, PC, uh, or No Frills. Anyway, I'm saying things that are very Canadian, so I apologize for well, American Kirkland, listeners. Kirkland and Costco is the Kirkland, Kirkland brand. There we go. Yeah. Right? yeah. So it is interesting I don't expect to walk through a supermarket and see the pile of Triscuits at the end of the end cap with a sign that says these Triscuits brought to you by Nabisco for X dollars a month or whatever. But I I guess that is interesting about big and small. And and I like making the contrast between E and brick and mortar. Yeah. So a new term I learned about, and I guess it was another American FTC thing that happened. I never knew about a monopsony. You're a professor. You can do better than me on words like that. (laughs) But 
it's interesting because we say is free okay. Well, Monopsony hurts. I think they went went after a bunch of publishers because they were the the people being impacted were the writers, right? It was almost like right. a cabal of publishers and hurting the writers. And maybe mm-hmm. Amazon could even be part of that because they do or not to choose to publish people's things. Does that change a little bit? Is that reasonable thing to discuss with you? Yeah, totally reasonable to discuss. I mean, monopsony occurs. It's uh, related to monopoly when there's a single buyer in the marketplace. So with online platforms or apps that govern platform-based work, of course, I think Uber pops to mind most often for most people. You could say that this is an instance of monopsony power. You have one purchaser, you have one employer, one platform. I know they don't think the people that work for them are employees, so the, the matchmaker that can control the price and the availability of work. So then, you know, questions come up like, are the algorithms that govern this work collusive? Is there enough transparency? Is there enough accountability? And because there's so much digitizing, I mean, I don't want to be boring, but recently I read that book about shipping by Christopher Mims. Mm, about, yes. Like next day delivery. I heard him so, interviewed recently. Yeah. So fun. <laughs> and, you know, he makes this very tiny point in the book that there's been so much consolidation across shipping platforms that there's basically one company. So an instance of a monopsony that can set the rates for shipping because they know what everyone else is charging and where they're going because of that massive information. So that's related to what we were talking about before. What are we giving up? You know, where's that information going and what kind of market power or how does it empower particular businesses? And is the consumer aware? Um, and if I can say one more thing, and it's not quite related to shipping, but it is related to the the um, self-preferencing of private label stuff where we were fretting about. Another really big risk for entrepreneurs, independent sellers that are frankly forced to participate in these online marketplaces is that they make themselves vulnerable to being completely copied and ripped off. We see this time and time again. We see it happening at Target. We see Target saying, okay, these red t-shirts are really popular. So we're going to knock off this product. Knockoffs, not historically new, you know, imitation. There's always been markets for that. But then they either price discipline by undercutting the product or they kick them out of the market entirely. Again, there are charges that Amazon may have done this. And if this is the cost back to, you know, the cost, the price of participating in these marketplaces or in this digital society, I think we need to talk about it more. And we don't necessarily need to accept it as the default. Again, for somebody, a firm whose product or service you might be supporting wants to be able to compete. Well, they should be able to do that fairly. You want to be successful, but you can't let the big gun say, well, you know, third-party merchant on Amazon, you're successfully selling this widget. But once you sold a million dollars worth of these widgets, they're going to private label the widget. And and yeah. you're right, because the fa- I, I like going back to brick and mortar and historical. These fashions always been knocked off. It's always been the case. Yeah. And then we have this strange world of fast fashion. I, I guess one element is is regulation, which we'll see. Yeah. The other element, I kind of like it. It was in your Regs to Riches blog. And I never heard the term algorithmic resistance because we've been talking about business oh, models. Yeah. Yeah. But I like that. And I like, I think it's hashtag decline now. Right. It was um, DoorDash workers work together to game the algorithm that governs their work and agreed they would all turn down the lowest paying work. So, you know, I think it was fascinating to also just talk about 
what kind of regulatory environments do we need to recognize that someone's boss might be an algorithm or that we're treating people like robots or that we have a lack of transparency in these kind of bidding and marketplaces. Anyway, I think it was a really great example. And, you know, these workers shouldn't have to do that, but good on them. I've been learning a lot about these fast delivery services that are popping up, especially in New York City. And I mean fast delivery. Many warehouses within a mile radius of people touting 15-minute delivery. One of the newer entrants is from Europe. They're called Getir. And their delivery people are employees, not gig workers. In reading about the differences from a worker perspective, one advantage I see is that the employees get access to a bathroom. Oh, my. Look, that's being a good employer, being a humane employer. Maybe that's the new kind of fair trade, et cetera. Maybe we're going to see more people really caring about the labor behind these kinds of delivery aspects for sure. And maybe this, um, you know, maybe the gig model without any kind of benefits or, or security is going to kind of go the way of the dodo since I'm on my <laughs> cliche streak over here. I'd like to talk just a bit about these, you know, mega companies yeah. and get your sense of are we losing the opportunity for innovation? Mm. And I always feel like the, the innovation comes from the startups. Is it the innovator's dilemma on these big companies? Or can they just suck at enough data and do something clever because they're not the dumbest dinosaur in the world? I don't know. But I'm curious what your thoughts about how the mega companies are, are going to potentially impact startups. Well, one of those five pieces of legislation being proposed in the U.S. is related to killer acquisitions. So I think that's one aspect that we think about a lot, scholars at least, in the case of new entrants to the market, startups, and, and the ability to compete with, I'll say, large incumbents, the largest, most dominant incumbents. In terms of data and being able to compete, you know, back to knowing your customer and targeted ads, there's also a lot of evidence that shows targeted advertising just doesn't work. So maybe that's become a bit of a bubble or a bit of a sham, and we can maybe minimize that expenditure. You also think about companies getting out the gate, and you know this better than me. What kind of expenditure do they need to have on their Facebook ads and Google ads? Like there's a reality of just, again, the ability to participate in these marketplaces to get the word out. You're naturally dependent on Facebook and Google. I think, though you can make the case, of course, that you have alternatives, you do, but they're probably more expensive and maybe not as uh, wide ranging. So back to your question, what does it mean? Well, for some companies, their strategy may be to be acquired at some point, and that can be exciting and that can be a way for them to grow or to reach more customers much more quickly. In terms of the lack of direct competition for these large companies, I think it's increasingly of interest to regulators and to people to really think about that lack of alternatives. And we need more research. A little bit of a follow-on from mega companies. There's something that doesn't really exist yet, at least okay. in North America or most of the world. The, the term that I'm hearing now is the super app. Mm -hmm. And the one app that I guess really is a super app in China is WeChat. And I was in China pre-COVID for a wedding. And was the coolest thing is we went to a bubble tea store to get our bubble tea and we were ordering it on the on WeChat. Yep. And then we pushed another button and rolled virtual dice. And if we got a seven, our bubble tea was free. Mm -hmm. 
and we didn't get a seven and we paid for a bubble tea with a credit card and we walked away. And I'm thinking to myself, who got the data that I bought this bubble tea? Mm -hmm. I mean, I could see a benevolent super app that becomes maybe Apple becomes the benevolent super app provider so that you, the bubble tea store, keeps the data about your customers, but the super app provider isn't necessarily sucking in that data, but they provide all these tools and maybe they take a piece of the action for that. And it's money, but it's not necessarily privacy. I, I, I'm wondering if business, mm. you know, we, we talked about business models more than algorithms, which I find fascinating Yeah, um, because we always talk about algorithms and AI. We're not, which I think is great. I'm wondering if there's a, we could evolve to something that would be kind of more interesting. I mean, we can always evolve. One thing, <laughs> one thing in your story, it sounds like you and your friend each paid the same price and that that was a posted price for the bubble tea because we do see online so much algorithmic personalized pricing, right? Mm. And that's informed by your profile. Now, back to that brick and mortar world. Fine, if you're in a more well-to-do neighborhood, sometimes groceries do cost a little bit more and people are a little bit aware of that. But again, lack of transparency for the consumer you and I might get a different price for, I don't know what we're both shopping for, but I bet it's really cool. So, you know, your, what I like about your bubble tea example is the hitting in the movement to payments, because I think in that race to potentially become a super app alongside the payment processing space is the health tech space. And we know that wearables are not at least in Canada, they're not a medical device. They don't fit what we conceived of so many years ago as a medical device, but they increasingly position themselves as one. So having our health information, having our purchase history, knowing where we shop and what we buy for grocery stores, you know, could it be that if, uh, I'll give a Canadian example, Loblaw knows about my, I'll say fondness for Miss Vicky's salt and vinegar chips, that my health insurance premium is going to go up at work because they have, you know, the evidence that I'm not following a particular diet. It's funny and it's silly, but we're actually not that far from it. Can we have a benevolent situation with it where people are opting in and saying, yeah, nudge me, give me incentives, give me a discount for buying apples or healthier foods? Maybe. I think we already see that happening with loyalty programs and points programs and something you mentioned, which is kind of like the gamification of shopping. Mm -hmm. um, but as it as it slips into the kind of, is this a word, gamblification, like more ah, gambling like or like bidding it. yourself? I mean, yeah, why uh, now I'm being silly, but why isn't everything we purchase online an open auction between me and uh, the bot and the seller? Why can't I say, sure, I want those. What do I want to buy? I don't know. I'm looking around my desk, a water bottle, but why don't I just say, I'll give you a dollar for it. Again, being silly, but what's the future and how do we balance consistency and transparency in marketplaces with the kind of dynamism that people may want and that an online marketplace naturally facilitates? So we got a, a couple of places I went down hearing you. One is, yeah, it doesn't have to be online. It's probably a decade old now. It's the Target mm -hmm. story where the father got the mail, where they yep. identified that the daughter was pregnant because of what she purchased. Yeah, so we have to figure out how we fence that. The flip side, as I think about the healthcare side. I've got a kid that says, I'm perfectly happy with targeted ads. They can have everything they want about me because I, I like the ads. And yeah. I may say, I'm a safe driver. So give me cheaper rates. And mm -hmm. oh, that person's smoking. Give that person higher car insurance rates. And that person is uh, overdoes Miss Vicky's chips. Maybe that person shouldn't you know, get higher mm -hmm. healthcare rates. I, I would rather see an average and there's 
I'd rather see bell curves where we don't have to have so many fine points, but maybe I'm naive in thinking where this is going to go. I don't think you're naive. I think it's, it just, the questions go beyond the binary. Where's the transparency? Where's the accountability? Why did you see that targeted ad? I think people would like to know. Yeah. I think consumers deserve that. Why am I seeing this? What data factored into that? And also back to the integrating across verticals. Sure. Give up that information, but Did you know that that information about books that you're searching for is informing, you know, the rights, the cinematic rights to uh, a film being produced, et cetera? No, you think you're just signaling that you liked that book or something. So that's where I think there's more of a disconnect and where we need to go tell, just tell better stories too, right? And go beyond us being profiled as individuals and also understand Again, in aggregate, those implications from a competition perspective and also from, uh, you know, I, I think it makes art and cultural pieces and this goes to music, too. I think it makes it all the more boring and bland. And that's a real that's a real risk. Right. Spot, Spotify. We didn't talk about music, but Spotify is basically beholden to the big three record companies. It's not this independent, benevolent music algorithm. Anyway, separate conversation. <laughs> What would you like to see in the short term in terms of the maybe the most important regulation that you'd like to see? Oh my gosh, the most focus important. I love all you love all your babies right now. <laughs> all your children are great. <laughs> okay. I used to daydream about being like the bot czar, like just regulating online chatbots because it made me so angry that they could impersonate humans. I didn't think that should be allowed. But the most important thing I think regulators can think about doing is just be committed to radical incrementalism. There's a lot of stuff we can do that's a no-brainer, that's low-hanging fruit. I think of Lena Khan's recent announcement that she's, I mean, I'll use the phrase going after, but planet fitness, how yeah. hilarious is that? Just that example of, listen, if you sign up online, you got to be able to unsubscribe online. It's basic consumer protection. It's clear. It's fair. People expect it from the role of the state. And that's where I think if you look for examples like that, where you can improve people's online experiences, bring more transparency and accountability, then you're doing something right. And then just keep doing that. Do more and more and more of it. That's what people should do. That's fantastic. Vas, thank you so much for taking the time. This is just extraordinary. I had so much fun talking to you. Thank you. 